0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. For this episode, we're breaking from the norm and bringing you something special. In honor of the 68th Annual DGA Awards, which took place earlier this month, we're going to devote the next few episodes of the Director's Cut to our popular Meet the Nominees Feature Film Symposium. Now in its 25th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. On February 6th, Alejandro Eñárritu, the director of The Revenant, Tom McCarthy, the director of Spotlight, Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short, George Miller, the director of Mad Max Fury Road, and Ridley Scott, the director of The Martian, all gathered at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles to discuss the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So enjoy part one of our Meet the Nominee special and hear about the ideas that inspired these films, the advice our nominees took to heart when they started out their careers, as well as anecdotes about the casting process for each film. Enjoy.
1: Um, As we get started, this is is a rare opportunity for all of us to be with such skilled craftspeople as we get ourselves wired in. As you know, this is an audience of directors and assistant directors and production managers, associate directors. This is an audience of your peers who are here to, in fact, learn from you. That's what this is about. And as we get wired in, I'm thinking, um, since we're interested in learning from you, my first question is, what have you learned from other directors? Anything specific that you learned from another director? George, any advice from any director that you ever encountered? Or, having seen other directors work, what inspired you?
2: Well, I I like just about everybody else. You learn in the cinema. You learn by watching. Um, but then you watch what people do. And back in Australia, there, when I started there, were, there were other people in filmmakers cooperative, but there, but there were no directors you could directly learn from. However, I started to read the books, um, and those interview books, by the way, uh, where you'd, for instance, those AFI legendary directors, where they, uh, uh, and you'd pick up directors with whom you felt simpatico, and and the one, I mean, so many of them, but the one that seemed to be able to say it in the pithiest way was Hitchcock. He, he, I loved. I loved just when, when he it directly influenced uh, the Fury Road movie when he said, I try to make movies where they don't need to read the subtitles in Japan. That, that was a big one for me. <laughs> and, and I love the the other one which he said um, about suspense. You, you, everyone knows that but the, the suspense and surprise, um, which is that suspense is when you expect something to happen and it doesn't. And surprise is the opposite when something happens when you don't expect it. He said, surprise is only one moment, suspense can last almost a whole movie. Those simple little things were, were very important. Um, but then, it, without, make this a long, without making this a long answer, I, I did when uh, others uh, in Australia were making movies. Um, uh, for instance, Peter Weir gave me some really, really valuable advice. I just finished the first Mad Max. It was. Um, I'd never really been on a movie set before. I, I thought if you really planned the movie and you went out and shot it, that it basically would go okay. And I was completely bewildered by the process. It was, it was, you know, I describe it like a big dog. You want to take it for a walk that way and it dragged you off this way. And and I remember sitting down talking to Peter, who would already done about two movies, and I said, oh, I'm not cut out for this. And he said... Uh, He said, but George, don't you realise that every movie is like this? You've got to think of it. Um, It wasn't long after the Vietnam War, and he said, you've got to think about it like being being, uh, on patrol in the jungle and you've got to complete some sort of mission. You don't know where the landmines are, you don't know where the snipers are, but somehow you've got to find your way through it. So be alive to the adjustments that you need to make and it's never going to be any different. And... I then went on pretty soon after to make the second Mad Max, which was way more difficult than the first one, but with that advice in my head, I thought, okay, this is what the real world is like, it. and it's still like that, so that was very valuable. Good advice, man. Yeah. good advice, thank you. Alejandro, advice
1: other directors gave you, or inspired by other directors?
3: Yeah, I, I I was lucky. I I start. Um, uh, I was in radio, so I was doing a lot of things in audio that were kind of a little storytelling, provoking characters and things. That was very good for me. And then I was lucky to have the opportunity to start shooting um, some commercials in Mexico. So I started shooting things. And and once I was in the set, I was learning. I, I didn't study cinema. I I was self-made, kind of understanding what was a set, a camera. To actors, and all things, and I had a great chance to fail and do so very bad things in, in, in this kind of little exercise. And I started thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I know how to do that. And then I was lucky to suddenly I felt that I was limited. I was just shooting things, but there was no understanding of many things, and I went into a theater class with a great teacher that was called Ludwig Margulis, which he was from Poland and he was a very minimalistic, very theoretical kind of genius guy, who actually I think studied with him three years, the actor really, he was the one who implanted in me what really means to be a director, what the responsibility you have in the set. So, I mean, his, his theory was you have to know more than anybody if you want to command people, so if you don't know about Architecture, or lighting, or painting, or dancing, or narrative, or drama—you or, really need to be responsible to be having uh, a bunch of people that, that that will be very well prepared. And so I was panicked. I was terrifying. I said, "I better start really going." <laughs> Suddenly, he implanted in me the responsibility that you have when you go into a set, commanding that. And uh, and I, I think I learned a lot from him. I remember that the best uh, the best thing that he told me was we were doing these little plays in the room, and I I was kind of insecure and unsafe, and I asked a f- friend of mine, a production designer, to put some, uh, you know, li- a book stand and a table and blah, blah, blah. So the play finished, and then in front of the class, he, he literally humiliated me, as he should do, and he destroy people in front of everybody, but he gave you big lessons, and he said, why you need this table? Why you need a book stand? Why you need this? I mean, like these props. And he said, can you do not convey me? You don't, you, can you not convince me? Because he was from this th- Polish theater, like black theater, like abstract. And he was from this theory that if you cannot get only with the imagination and the actors and the pace and the things that the people imagine that universe without any element, then you are a failure. Yeah. And, I, and he was right. I didn't need these shitty things in a room, in a classroom, you know what I mean? I said yes. So it was like the economic of things, like go to the DNA. And then uh, you know, I started studying another person that I think was crucial for me, which I think is here. Where is Judith Weston, are you here? Judith, uh, Judith is one of the best. <laughs> teachers, I had an amazing, she has, you know, books that really has inspired me, and I started with her directing actors, and all the, all the methods of Judith, I really assimilate in a practical way, and then, obviously, as they are saying, watching films and reading, sculpting in time of Tarkovsky changed my life, and when I see a filmmaker doing things that I don't understand, and probably will never be able to do, just implant me a poise that bites me. And I want to make something like that, and maybe I will never do, but that excites me and inspires me to keep doing and learning uh, the process, you know.
0: Thank you, thank you.
1: Tom, for you, any advice that another director gave you or inspired by other directors? Uh,
4: probably both. Uh, when I was, It's funny, panic seems to be the theme throughout all these answers, <laughs> which makes me feel so much better. Uh, I was a little panicked back there, <laughs> watching the clips together, which is pretty wonderful. Um, uh i when i was making my first film the station agent uh i had written this screenplay and been trying to get it made for years and was having a lot of trouble and uh it finally happened very quickly. I had like half a million dollars, which at that time I thought was quite a bit of money. And uh, I was really excited. And um, I, then as I got closer and closer and closer, I just had one of those moments of like, I'm an absolute fake. I really don't know what I'm doing. And I've convinced just enough people that I've started this train. And I really, you know, it was like sort of the actor's nightmare in, a while, in some way. And uh, I went in, Sidney Lumet at that point was sort of my mentor. And uh, I just called him, and I was like, I have to come up. He was on the Upper West Side. I was downtown. And I have to talk to you, because I, I think I may be having my first panic attack in my life. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, oh, great, sweetheart. Come right up. Um, <laughs> if you know Sid, that's everything. And yeah, he called me sweetheart quite a few times. Um, and, uh, but I think he called everyone that. Um, but I went up there, and he just uh, he just knew where I was at. Like, instantly, you know, he was a master. And I was in his office, and I was an idiot. and. Um, he just did a great job of sort of sitting me down and letting me talk for about 20 minutes and said, great, great, great. And then he said um, to his, uh, I think it's Penny, his longtime assistant, can you get me the, the, the script of the verdict? And they, she brought in his shooting script and he just sat next to me and kind of flipped through his of uh, the shooting script of the verdict with his notes said, it's really not that hard. Look, see, I just the camera and I'm gonna do this and look at that, and it's open on the pinball machine and then we're gonna, and he just kind of talked me through like half the verdict. And uh, in some weird way, it should have been ultimately incredibly intimidating. I mean, because I thought, well, I'm obviously never gonna ever do that. Um, but it was weirdly liberating, because he just made it so, he really broke it down in such a simple way. And he just talked about, ultimately, I think my biggest fear at the time was just camera and blocking and, and how I was gonna approach this, this, screen, this film. And he just talked about really understanding what a movie was about and forcing myself as a director to take one final look at each scene and say, make sure you understand. Because I think as a writer, it's sometimes tricky because you live with the screenplay for so long. You think you understand it. And sometimes I think we all know you really don't understand it till after you've made the damn movie. Um, but like going back at that last moment and being like, do I really understand exactly? And he said, if you understand exactly what that scene, you can shoot that scene very quickly. You'll know how you want to do it. You'll be able to impart that and articulate those ideas to your collaborators, mm-hmm. and, and they will assist you in that, but it'll be crystal clear, and that somehow, I thought, oh, look, okay, that's something I can do. I can understand what this scene, and I have a place, a toehold in this process. So that Sid was, and he continued, and then visually, he just continues to be a huge inspiration to me, so uh, maybe, maybe that's a very two and fortunate
1: one. to have the master talk to incredibly
4: you. Fortunate. Yeah, it, incredibly
5: fortunate, yeah, incredibly fortunate.
1: Adam, for you, advice from other directors or directors who inspired you?
5: I think the big inspiration was when I was 17 years old, I watched Blue Velvet. And I watched it like at 9 o'clock at night. I went to sleep. And the next morning, I got up and I was like, I dreamt that. There's no way I just saw a guy sing Candy Colored Clown into a Klieg Light. And I had to go put the VHS tape back on and watch it again. And there were other directors at that time, like Alex Cox was a guy that I loved. And so pretty quickly I started realizing I love controlled chaos. I love when you don't know what's gonna happen yet there's a hand behind it. So I remember when we were shooting Anchorman and we're shooting this crazy battle sequence where the news teams are all fighting. (laughs) And at one point I had a guy on fire I had Steve Carell killing a guy with a trident, and this is all happening at once. Uh, A lot like Alejandro's scene we just saw. Um, I don't want to argue about which is better, we can talk about that later. Um, We were in a parking lot in downtown LA, which I think is where Alejandro shot his scene. but I remember having this moment of kind of glory of this is controlled chaos. So I, I always point to Lynch and Alex Cox as two guys that really influenced me.
1: Did anyone actually, any other director actually give you any specific advice? Because I know you work worked with others. Uh,
5: you know, there was one guy I hung out, believe it or not, with Julian Schnabel for a little while in New York City. And, uh, I asked him at one point, I go, how do you make this jump from being this brilliant painter to like making these really good movies? Like, he's a serious filmmaker. And he just said, it's all choices. He goes, it's the same thing. He goes, I make the same choices when I'm going to break the plates and paint on them, or I'm going to do the girl with the line through her eyes. I'm choosing the colors. I'm choosing the palette. I'm choosing the subject. And he said, I view directing as the exact same thing. It's thousands and thousands of choices. And he's like, I don't know how to operate a camera. I mean, I do a little bit, but he said, I don't know about the lens sizes, but I know the choices. And that was like, I started primarily as a writer, Mm -hmm. uh, even though I did a bunch of short films on Cyanide Live. Uh, But hearing that really kind of opened film up for me and made me not insecure to be with like, in the case of this movie, like a master DP like Barry Ackroyd, I could openly joke with Barry Ackroyd about how I don't know what that lens is,
0: <laughs> and we
5: had ongoing bits where I would recommend made-up lenses to him. You're going to use uh, the Dubon 130. Uh, it's out of Madagascar. It might blow up, but give it a try. And um, And once I kind of gave up that pretense of I have to know everything, that's just not the kind of director I am, then I was able to get into the flow with the technical side of it. It kind of freed it up for me. But that came from Schnabel, just saying it's just a series of choices. You
1: know, Ridley, in your movie, thank you, there's a line where I think near the end, which sort of summarizes the process, which is first you solve one problem then you solve the next problem and the next and if you solve enough problems you get to go home. So it seems to be problem after problem after problem. One of the things I want to talk about first is in fact pre-production which is a bizarre time because as you just talked about choices there are so many choices that you know what location who are we going to put in it who are we going to work with that it's a very sort of imbalanced time. Things aren't quite defined yet and I'd like to talk about pre-production, I'm gonna start talking specifically about your casting process. And what I'd like to look at is, I was just thinking this over here, if you were casting somebody to be the moderator of this particular symposium, and a bunch of actors came in, how would you go about casting them? And we don't have to play that, but I, I, what I'm interested in. Huh? Got it, okay. What I'm interested in is, when, it, when the actor is not somebody you're making an offer to, you already know that you want this person in your movie. But it's, a, but it's an actor who you are now going to discover. You know this is part. So, I, I'm interested in, How you go about that process really, if an actor is coming in, or whether actors come in now, maybe you see them all on on tape and digital, how do you go through the process um, uh, of choosing, I'm thinking specifically one actor, you you, you may have offered it to him, but the one who plays uh, Rich Parnell, who plays the astrodynamic uh, guy, he's he's wonderful in the movie, it's it's not a, he's in two or three scenes, and so not a lot, what was the process for you when you're looking for an actor that isn't already somebody you know you wanna offer?
6: What do you do? Uh, as, as we all probably uh, have different methods of Is working. Right? I think we all do. I mean, and I'm a two-take Charlie. I'll take two takes. In fact, I said to Matt, he said, how many takes do you take? I said, two. He said, uh, so what was it like with Clinton He said, well, he takes one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I discovered way back when, when I pre, a very extended commercial career, uh, my film school was 2,000 commercials. Right. So I could hit the ball from any direction. knew every lens inside out, and could walk on a set barely doing any homework. And say, right, we put a four cameras—one there, one there—but there. with that, you have to. People say, well, you don't need a camera. On the contrary, I need a really great cameraman because I'm really going to push it. So when you extend to eleven cameras, it's all about knowledge and intuition. I function entirely by intuition so frequently and once you've got the script assuming you have the script even as we're evolving the script and i spend a lot of time with writers and as i'm the more and more time i spend with the writer i'm already starting to see the film in in my head because i'm storyboard uh and so i've already filmed the film on paper before i even start filming in my head Mm -hmm. and uh the casting i've already thought about the first two or three characters so that said, you still need a great casting director. So then, um, casting director turns up. Who I use one of two here and one of two in London. And if they're available, and I uh, said so I thought of blah blah blah. Normally they say, yeah, if we can get them, we'll go for that. And then, and then there's a myriad, usually of other people uh, to cast. And that's when I then start to commune with the casting director. And I always try and to, if I can, find people I haven't seen before and I um, was trying to look for new people you know, Brad Pitt Sigoni we have haven't done a movie and I always remember with Sigoni I had to uh, somebody said, this is a very tall girl doing off Broadway theatre, better go see her so I met with her, she turned up, she's like 6 foot 6 in high heels and she's got an afro so she's like, I'm like a, a midget by her and uh, I met her, and um, it was all intuition.
1: But when you've worked with someone, who, or when you find someone who you've not worked with before, I'm interested yeah. in that. Yeah. I don't know if there's anybody in the cast who were people that you yeah. not worked
6: before. Twenty-five years ago, I'd read everybody, everybody, everybody. Got it. I'd be in the room reading with everybody, and then you discover things for your own process. And my process is, is I think, a reader is entirely artificial, Right. and therefore if I will. Look at faces, and it's nearly always a visual thing. I look at faces, think, interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, can I see their work? I'll always look at their work before I meet them, Got it. Uh, because I think when you're walking, walking, work a person in the room, who sits down, then it's there. You want to read. Um, it's it's not a good place to do it, and it's not really a rehearsal, so it's unfair, I think. So if I've already seen what they can do. If I really like them, I'm halfway into the field already. So when I meet them, I usually talk about everything but the film. I want to know who they are. And I want to know who they, what they think about everything from politics to art. I really don't care. Chat, because what I'm looking for in an actor is something that's going to surprise me. My job as a director, if I get a take, I go, wow. I then say, do you want to go again? Because I've got it. And if they say I want to go again, I say, absolutely, so will go again. But so I always try and conform over the years, realise I must have been in partnership with the person I'm bringing When
1: in. you're in that room and having a conversation about anything, yeah. have you noticed any particular item in those conversations that will reveal who that person is?
6: Yeah, when they start literally talking about the character. Um, because I think what's interesting, you first of all get them relaxed, I don't care who the actor is. They're going to come in having never met you. They're not going to be relaxed. My job is to relax them both there and on the floor. If I create a situation, an environment of safety for the actor, the actor then blossoms because everyone in that room is wanting them to do well in that particular take. And therefore they just open up. And so it becomes much more of a rehearsal. Every take is like a rehearsal. Even though I I shoot on rehearsal, I never never rehearse.
1: Thank you. great. George, there's some amazing characters and actors in your piece. Some of them you, again, like really you may have known them, like the guy who plays Nooks or Rictus, the, the brother of character. Of, uh, they're just, what is your process if you haven't already seen that person's work? How do you meet them? How do you get accustomed? What happens with you in a casting session?
2: Well, one thing I know, it's different for each film. It's a different exercise if there's lots of dialogue uh, then uh, you, you you're you're basically working off the existing material. But in Fury Fury Road was atypical uh, in that there's very little dialogue. Yet I needed to know that people could go out there and bring a character with the proper preparation and so on. So some of the actors, of course, I knew. I, I, I hadn't known uh, uh, Charlize Theron, Tom Hardy. I didn't know Nick Holt. Um, uh, the so what and, and in fact looking back on it, I didn't know most of the cast. But, um, <laughs> but what I did, um, we we did we did two things because we were casting in, in, out of Australia, United States, and, and Britain. We um, we gave actors a choice. This is being taped with with very good uh, casting agents. And we gave them a choice of a number of scenes to play, very wordy scenes. Uh, uh, scenes from Network, the, the big monologues from Network. There was um, the the dead parrot scene from Monty Python. Um, love scenes, just a whole mixture of scenes. And they just got the sides, maybe one or two pages. And by that very choice they made, it um, w- was very, very interesting. If, if uh, someone who you know, a, 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 a young female actor ch- chose to do Monty Python rather than do, say, a love scene or something. That was very, very interesting. Um, and the main... And, and then when we narrowed it down... And we and actually these got, scenes were all done on tape, so you were seeing th- This that. was initially on tape. Right. And then when we narrowed it down, I worked with Nico Lathuris, who was one of the writers and also a fine dramaturg himself, and we would do pretty extensive work um, with, with the actors. Um, Nick Holt, uh, who I'd seen very young, I think it was four hours, but we'd always match up uh, two actors and they'd work together around the scene and, and just to understand uh, their agility, their flexibility, and, and, and basically have a good time with them. But um, you'd work
1: with two actors in this casting process? so yeah. Two people?
2: Yeah. Um, usually, yeah, it, it was two people not necessarily up for, up for the same role but um and again it wasn't it wasn't it was scenes we wrote nothing to do with the movie but around that just to see the way they approached the work and it was very interesting and what I like is that eventually they said oh they they had a good time at least in that process exactly what you say Ridley it's so much about relaxation i uh, creating the safe space and so on so but ultimately it's all an intuitive process, but that intuition is informed by a kind of intellectual rigor. I won't say intellectual, but the cere- you you have to think it through, and then the, the final decision is just is just—it's just like falling in love. Who, who who
1: do you ever go through the agonizing? Oh, this one or that one, and I like both of them. And how do you
2: make that decision at the moment when you're saying this is the one I'm going with? I I, I have done. Uh, and um, not necessarily on this in this movie, uh, because it's all pretty clear. Um, but you, you 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 you're also you you're also mixing and matching. You're putting a group of people together. So uh, and, and and in this case, you really have to look at the colours and everything that you think that person might bring.
1: Were there parts for you in this that were challenges to find?
2: other than I suspect the little man with the uh, binoculars I suspect there was you had to find him and found him but well I made that role for him I needed uh, he he was somebody I knew a wonderful uh, guy uh, Quentin uh, and and uh, Quentin get and and he was um, he was he's a film director and and uh, he has that that uh, that soft bone disease. And, but he, he, he does, you know, commercials, he does, um, uh, video clips and so on. And, uh, and I, I thought, is there, is there a way that we could, we could fit him in? And then it suddenly occurred to me, oh, he would be, you know, he would work because he's not very mobile and, 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 um, and, and, and so on. But, well, that's
1: an interesting idea. That's, that's adop- adapting a role for a personality, a human being that you're really interested in having in your movie.
2: Well, he suited it very, very much, and he was very interesting. And it wasn't just, oh, "I'll make a, a role for you." Uh, it was, "Oh, okay, this is what he's this is this is what he's able to bring." I was very. I tried to fit him in somewhere else, didn't work. And then it suddenly occurred to me, this could really serve the story. Ultimately. Uh, the Morton Joe, uh, uh, the, the tyrant, is looking for uh, healthy heirs and he has two sons. One is a, 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 you know, a child in a man's body and the other is a, a man in a child's body. In the past I've had roles I never thought I could cast. And then, then at a certain point, it's really interesting, at a certain point you, you lock into somebody and you think no one else can play them. And we know so, historically... Um, people who people desperately wanted to play one role and someone else plays it and plays it iconically. So you've got to be uh, open. But I remember um, uh, Jack Nicholson, I think is one of the wisest man, uh, men I ever met, um, said, just remember that once you've ca- cast the movie, that person is perfect for the role. <laughs> and, and I think it's true. That's great.
1: I like that one. Thank you for that, um, Tom. There are some very powerful performances that sometimes people are in one scene, like Father Paquin when you knock on the door and we suddenly meet this man. How do you go about the process of casting? Being an actor yourself, if I remember correctly, this is something you know. So, and you've been in that position. What's your process of casting?
4: uh, you know, I, I think they're all similar in some way, right? I uh, I will say it's a part of the process, having coming up as an actor, that I really enjoy. I think it's of you know, you know, as we all know, being a director, there's so many facets to the job. That particular facet, I take a lot of joy. And I and I never. Uh, it's interesting you were talking about the pressure and stuff, Alejandro. Because I never feel that because I think I'm just so. I, I, I now I probably will, and you ruined it for me, so thank you. <laughs> now that I know, I can screw everything up. I never knew that before. Damn it, I shouldn't have done this panel. Um, but there's, uh, I, I think, uh, having been in that room, and Ridley said this, and it's true, that the rehearsal room is in no way conducive to anything creative, even with very experienced actors. I've seen some wonderful actors come in and just push or sell or try too hard or just be uncomfortable or just not want to be there, you know, and it's understandable, so I think part of the job is making that room much more of a discussion and a dialogue about character than it is a, a test or or an audition, um, and I think that's tricky. I think, you know, one thing having come up as actor, I had a chance to work with a lot of very good directors and watch the different process, and some not so good. See some where I thought, well, that's not helpful to me, how he gave direction, and that is, or, you know, whoever that is. And, I mean, uh, someone mentioned Clint earlier, and I worked with him once, and he really is one take. And it's terrifying, you know? And he's like, I was like, you sure I got that? He's like, yeah, I'm sure. And he walked away. And I'm like, all right. (laughs) And uh, I don't think his DP liked it very much either, you know? (laughs) DP's like, double-check the gate, triple-check the gate. Um, But that's Clint, you know? Um, But I feel like, specifically with with this film, it was the largest cast I've ever had. And and, uh, it was... You know, look, that first, the, the top of the bench, right? My first eight or 10 people on the call sheet are incredibly experienced actors, right? I uh, have worked collectively quite a bit and I felt very safe where I was with that casting, but then a lot of it was all these people who come in for one or two scenes. Richard O'Rourke is that actor, is a local boss. An actor is a terrific example. Just something about his look, his face, right? I believe this guy could possibly be a priest at one time and could possibly, it sounds horrible, but done bad things. Um, <laughs> I could hear myself saying it. I was on the train. (laughs) Full full disclosure, I was in The Wire on the fifth season as, you know, in some ways, one of the most hated characters. I was this weaselly white guy. There was nothing cool about me, and I was a really bad journalist. And I remember David Simon called me when I was editing The Visitor, and he said, I've got this part. I think you're perfect for it. And But I didn't know what it was because he never shows you until the next episode. And at first, I'm like, this guy's cool. And then halfway through, I'm like, I'm the biggest... (laughs) on the show, and, and I was. Everyone hated me. Um, but uh, So I guess you saw something in my character that was Weasley. <laughs> so I saw something in Richard. Um, but you know, with, the, with these people,
1: it was re- it was but What's really, the process? Are you meeting them? I just bring them in. Yeah,
4: you? I would just go. I'm still with this. I feel like I really had to be in the room because a lot of these guys weren't experienced.
1: Who, who else is in the room with you?
4: Um, this time uh, sometimes my co-writer Josh Singer, just because he was really involved and really wanted to be, and he hadn't been, and I, I'm pretty open that way. But I don't have a lot of people. I, I rarely have producers or anyone else in the room. I just it's got to be as simple as possible when people come in. And um, there was another guy, uh, Jimmy. LeBlanc, who um, who plays Patrick McSorley, I was ask. yeah, he's one of the survivors and uh, who has the tracks on his arm and yeah, an amazing scene with Stanley and Mark Ruffalo and that guy's he's been in a few of Ben's movies in Boston but like really small almost extra roles, um, uh, but he hasn't done anything. He's like a working member of the Sheet metals Union.
3: I want to say something because uh, I think that what is fantastic about your film too is not only the main caster, but this, all these victims, all these guys. Yeah. yeah. Because I think sometimes that what make a film much more powerful is not the principal but the secondary or even the guy that has one line can define the whole film and that's where the film really yeah. and i think in your film is especially true in those characters that just come in and go out for one scene but yep. it gives the gravity i was really impressed about okay. that That cast now when they come in
1: because let's uh, let's discover what your process is these here's this actor who played patrick yeah coming in do you engage in conversation? Do you actually have a Yeah, just talk Do you meet with
4: him? He was a tough, he was particularly tough. That's why I brought him up Got because it. he was just a tough guy. He's from Southie. He knows those, as we talked later, he knows those people. In fact, I rehearse. I always rehearse for at least a couple of weeks. This cast was hard to get together because they were so big and they all work so much, they're hard, but we finally got together in New York and I brought him in one day and it was him and Tucci and Mark Ruffalo and Keaton was there and uh, he just came in and was kind of ice and was like really into it, you know, and and was good and I could tell he'd never been in a rehearsal room. I could just tell. that He didn't know what was going on, what we were doing, we sat down, but he handled himself really well and I kind of walked him out afterwards. So that was really good. It's first step. We're not about getting there yet. It, my rehearsals aren't about performance. They're just about getting everyone on the same page, developing a dialogue. You know, under, with, with this particular movie, really understanding material, which he did. He knew people that were abused. He knew the priests. He knew the parishes. He came from that community. It's a really small community. So he was like, really helpful. But I remember I was walking him out, and I was like, that was great. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, uh, you cool? Because you seem really comfortable. You're not freaked out by these guys? He just stops. He goes, of course I'm freaked out that, was the, and and that <laughs> <laughs> like, the was the hulk and batman and that guy from He's like the best was goes the hulk and batman and that guy from the devils wear prada which I thought he's like amazing and uh, and uh, but he covered and he was tough but he had his own journey I, I want to so. go back a bit what what
1: made you decide to cast him and again did really you mean-
4: Really, because what I needed in this film, and this was a big point of debate production-wise, because we split our production between Boston and Toronto, and this was something I was really, really fighting against, because Boston is the movie, and we weren't. We we're at the point where we were not going to make the movie. Sometime you got to teach me how to get more money, because I'm not that good at it, <laughs> and uh, and I, I was going to pull the plug. So i was just getting to a point where i dazed, and it was just not going to. I wasn't going to make the movie. This movie it was too important to me. And uh, my line producer, Michael Biederman, really saved the film by figuring out, he just broke it all down. He's like, look, we shoot everything in Boston that we need to and we just go build one set in Toronto, the newsroom and the spotlight office. We can't shoot in, but that in Boston anyway, so who cares if we're in Brockton or Toronto? And, and we can make it work, and we'll come back seasonally. My one caveat to that was, okay, any actor that has one line that I need has got to come from Boston and from the community. Uh, now look, there's some amazing, as I found later and I relented because I found a few, there's some amazing actors in Toronto because it's such a shop town, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got this culture of character actors who come in and give you great performances. But I needed these actors to come up. For instance, the woman at the front desk at the Globe who's got one really one scene at the end of the movie where she says, great, great article, boys. He comes in, he says, The phones haven't rang all day. You know, Maddie sent two of mine down to Spotlight. And she just had this voice and this face and was from there. And I was like, I gotta have her, you know. And so I brought her up. And um, that was really tricky. You know, that's what I I needed people who would really bring that level of authenticity to this culture. Keep in mind, I got lucky with the reporters. I didn't have to have a lot of actors do those accents because of one, it's an incredibly tricky accent to get right, right, we know that. Um, and the reason is it's so varied. But as it turns out, Rosendez wasn't really from Boston. You know, Sasha wasn't really from Boston. They both, they all ended up there very early in their lives, but they didn't have that. The character
1: that's uh, Steve, the other. Uh, yeah. So,
4: so Rachel's character and Ruffalo's character, they didn't have to do it. And and with Robbie in that accent, with Michael was really concerned about. He did some great work with this dialect coach, Steve Gabis, out of uh, New York. I, Terrific.
1: I, I want to still jump in one more time. Well, Why? you we, saying I'm going off no, track no, no, or something? No, 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 no. You're doing just. You're do, You're doing just fine. You do not have to panic. Doesn't. <laughs> hey, you? You're doing I, good. You're doing just I, fine. I, My question is, like, for example, <laughs> when when someone like like played Nana. Nana. In. Yeah. And it's a it's a spectacular moment when yeah. she asks for a glass of water. Yeah, it's the tea. one moment in the movie where I get emotional
4: when I see it and I haven't seen it in a long time, but I think because she feels like a lot of my family that I grew up with and th- that Nana was another woman who we just found. She'd never acted a day in her life. She's the woman in the scene who asked Rachel for a, a glass of water. And how did water. you find her? They're having what'd you say?
1: No, how did you find her? You said oh, you'd I never I said
4: am I having fun? I was like yeah I am thanks for checking in. <laughs> I'm just starting to have fun. Good. Uh, uh, We just auditioned and she came in and she's a great example. We were shooting in this tiny house that we found. It was really, you know, it's one of those scenes that should have been, we should have been in and out in 20 minutes, because the scene's so simple. But it was so small that no crew member could move. And so it took like nine hours, and we're all like, where the hell is the day going? You know? And it was so frustrating and it was a big moment for Rachel. Uh and literally five minutes before Nana gave that great reading of that line, can I have a glass of water? She just was like watching it all and getting tired and getting cranky. And she just finally looked at me and she was just like, This is the silliest thing I've ever done. You know? And I was just like, Oh, that's not helpful right now. <laughs> uh you know. <laughs> Poor Rachel's like locked down and uh you know, but it was, but then, she, but then I had to sit there and talk to her and kind of get her into that place. And I started talking, literally in that instance, I started talking about the story. I started talking about, cause she read every article. Everyone in Boston did. As a lot of the older people we talked to, it was their TV. They would wait for that globe to arrive. They would get their coffee and they would read and they would be absolutely gutted and horrified. And she remembered that and she talked about, started talking about her own stories. And then we were ready to roll. She was there.
1: And when you were in the casting session with her, yeah. did she read for you? Did you just she talk did, to her? She did, and
4: she wasn't great. I think it's a little bit what Alejandro saying. There just comes a time where you're like, I'm not going to get any better than this. And that's a combination of face and spirit and voice and authenticity, and I'm, I can make this work. And as a director, that's our job sometimes, to figure out a way to make it work. And I think with her, I just in my gut, uh, I thought I would get her there.
1: Got it. Adam, you had also a large cast. What's your process, particularly after you've got your stars, what's your process of dealing with the other parts?
5: Well, yeah, we had our our big names, obviously, that, that, you know, were sort of at the center of the studio green-lighting the movie when you have Christian Bale and Ryan Gosling and these people. I always, even with those people, I have to meet with them beforehand because I work in an unusual way, so I have to make sure they're going to be okay with it. And basically what I do is I I almost am like two directors when it comes to doing a scene. And even in the audition, the first part I'll be like David Mamet, where you better fucking say every single word I wrote. And I want to hear the scene exactly the way it was written. And then halfway through the audition, I completely shift. And I become like Del Close. And suddenly it's, don't do anything I wrote. What would you do? Let's mess around with it. Let's try this. And so... With people like Christian Bale, he's obviously not auditioning, but I wanted him to know we had a conversation about it, like, I'm going to do this. We're going to do the as-written, we're going to get it, and then I'm going to completely pull the script out from underneath you, and we're going to just mess around, and I'm going to throw stuff out at you from behind the camera. Are you okay with that? Uh, And fortunately, they all were. So when you're auditioning roles like Uh, A great example is John Majero and Finn Wittrock play the kind of young guys in the movie, uh, Jamie and Charlie. And they're really good actors. And they came in and they read the script perfectly. And I said, I want both of them. So I got both of them in the room. And I just started having them do scenes that aren't in the movie. I just said, let's do the scene before this scene, before you guys decide to go into that big bank to see if you can get in. I want to see you walking in and how excited you are that this is your big chance. And they kind of looked at me like, what? And and then they just did it. So what I'm always looking for is, like, you know, on our best days, we're right about 80% of the time. Like, the best day I've ever had, I was right 80% of the time. So... You wanna make sure when you show up on that set and you've planned everything and you've written everything and the wardrobe's there and the lighting's there and everything's perfect, there's always something just different in the air that you didn't anticipate. And I wanna make sure the actors I have can go with that if there's something interesting happening. And and there are some brilliant actors out there who can read scripts up and down and are just amazing. And i bumped into a few of them, but when you take them off that script, They freeze a little bit. And I don't blame them if you're not comfortable with that. The best example I ever had with that was uh, Richard Jenkins, um, who I love. Uh, I needed him to play a character in Step Brothers, actually. And it's a pretty wild character. It's one of the craziest movies we ever made. So I needed a guy who had authority yet could completely go off the script and Jenkins is a guy. He did experimental theater in the 1960s. He has that authority. He's an amazing guy. You've worked with him, yeah. Tommy. He's the best. Yeah. So there's a scene at the end of the movie where he's talking to John C. Riley and Will Ferrell, and he's giving him the moral of the movie. And I'm behind the camera, and I just go, Richard, tell him something about how when you were a kid, you pretended to be a dinosaur, but you had to give that up. And Richard goes, what? <laughs> and I go, you know. Something like when I was a little kid, I used to pretend to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I would chase dogs and cats around the neighborhood. But I grew up, and now I can't do my dinosaur anymore. Don't lose your dinosaur. And he's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I, I, it's just film. It doesn't matter. Just go. And like, so he did a take, and it was pretty good. I go, Richard, there's something there. And he's like, all right. And we did one more take, and it was great. And then at the premiere, he walks up to me, and he goes... Please tell me you did not use that dinosaur speech. And it got applause. Like in the, it's one of the great it's one of the lines in the movie that's quoted the most. And so we had that I didn't do as much improv with The Big Short, but there's a lot of key moments that came out of that where for instance Brad Pitt is on the phone with Jamie and Charlie and once again I told them after three or four takes where we've got the script, I said let's mess around. Anything you want to try. And in one take, Brad just said, All right, I got to get going. I have to go get a colonic. colonic. And, uh, Finn Whitrock just outright broke. And, uh, and God bless my editor, Hank Corwin, put the break in the movie. And it just feels so real. Yeah, so you get these mistakes and overlaps out of it. Yet at the same time, you want to be mammoth. You want to be hard about the script, you know? You've,
1: you've picked up a, a, a subject that I actually want to deal with, but I want, which is in fact the issue of what I'm going to call the happy accident. So I, I want you all to talk about the idea of the happy accident, meaning that we've planned everything, but there's another element that happens. But before you go there, I want to go back to the casting session one more time with you. Sure. What parts were challenges for you to cast for example, the guy who plays the chow in the scene, we just saw it. Was he was he a difficult part to find?
5: Uh, the uh, Byron man you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, we read a lot of people for that. I, I like Alejandro, had the great benefit of having Francine Mazur, who's like the best casting director ever. So like anyone she brings you is in the ballpark of they could do the role. Um, so we read a lot of people for that role because... You didn't want him to be too arch. You just wanted him to be comfortable. And, and when you com- say red, I'm, I
1: want to just back off. Are you now seeing tapes that have been made that you're seeing or are these people coming into your mix, office?
5: Mix, she's showing me tapes. Do you want to bring this person in? I'm saying no, yes, no. I also, by the way, told Francine under the premise of on our best day, we're right 80% of the time. I said, you can overrule me. And one of the people she showed me was John Majero, who was in that David Chase movie, and I liked him. He's a really good actor. But I thought, oh, he's not right for Charlie. And she went, I overruled you. I had not come in and read. And then, sure enough, she was right. He was amazing. Right. And so the only thing I always say is, don't overrule me too much. But you get there's a couple times you can do it. And uh, so for this part, uh, so in the case of Byron Mann, yeah, that was a guy we probably read like 11 people for that role. It's one of the harder ones. Um, but what, I thought the local casting is the biggest challenge. What
1: made what I got that? What made you make the decision?
5: Uh, he played it. The real guy, Wing Chao is a real guy, and these people had no idea. They There's actually a social dynamic for it. There's actually a psychological name for it, like Kahneman and, and Tversky talk about it, where people will justify their own good fortune no matter what. So you can go up to a random person and give them ten million dollars, and two weeks later they'll be like, "I always knew this was going to happen. I'm just that kind of guy." And a lot of Wall Street has that. And uh, with all due respect to any Wall Street people, but um, it, actually, no respect to any Wall Street people.
1: Uh, (Laughter) <fuck 'em>. uh,
5: <laughs> Um, So I wanted Byron Mann to have that going on. I didn't want him to in any way think he was the villain. I didn't want him to in any way think he was evil, doing anything wrong. He was a guy who figured it out. The real guy went from making $110,000 a year to $20 million a year in one year. And and it was all because of this fraudulent security system that was going on, these derivatives. and Byron played it like a guy who was on top of the world. Like if you if you changed that scene and said Corell's a crazy man, Byron man's a hero, you could watch it again, and Byron's smugness becomes like, what are you talking about? Like, and, and I really wanted that. And
1: you saw it in the room in the casting.
5: I saw it in the room in the casting, and then when he got on the set, Corell just walked up to me and goes, "Great casting, this guy's <laughs> perfect." <laughs>
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of this feature film symposium and many other director Q and A's on our website at dga.org events. Be sure to download next week's episode as our five feature film nominees continue their discussion covering topics like working with actors and appreciating happy accidents on set. If you're enjoying the director's cut, Please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We hope you hear from us soon. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.